Unfortunately, the first few moments of the following sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones are missing. The Doctor is preaching from the first epistle of Paul the Apostle to Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. We join the Doctor now during his opening introductory remarks. Perhaps are repeated now, and it is suggested that this was one of them. It is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Very well, we are looking then not only at the definition of this great man, this mastermind of what happened at Bethlehem, but at the same time we are looking at what the early church repeated constantly to itself concerning this. Now, the Apostle puts it, you remember, in terms of his own personal experience. What led him to say it was this, that he had had this great and inestimable privilege of being called to be a preacher of the gospel. And to him there was no greater honor than that. There was nothing which was in any way comparable to it. He says, according to the glorious gospel, of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant, with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. And then comes our text. The apostle glories in his calling. He can think of nothing higher than this, the privilege of preaching the gospel, of being a herald of the glad tidings, an announcer, a proclaimer of the meaning of that which happened at Bethlehem there in that stable. Now, why does he glory in this? Well, here he tells us. And as he does so, he incidentally, it seems to me, tells us three main things. Three great principles are taught here, and I just want to hold them before you briefly. He first of all describes the character of this Christian message. That's why he gloried in being a preacher. That's why he exulted in the privilege of being a herald. It's the very character of the message. Well, what is the character of the message? Well, this is what he says here. First, he says it's a faithful saying. This is not some uh, idle gossip. This is not something which may be true or may not be true. We're all given to that, don't we? We hear something, and it's rather striking, and we go and repeat it. And somebody says, yes, but are you sure it's true? It sounds very wonderful. Ah, but the question is, is it true? I've heard rumors before. Now, says the apostle, this isn't a rumor. This isn't idle gossip. This is a faithful saying. It's sure. It's true. Or perhaps the best word of all is, it's, it's trustworthy. It's something which we are to receive, to accept, as he says. We, we needn't hesitate about this. It's not something which is doubtful. It's not merely something which is speculative. It isn't some idea. Somebody's got some theory. It isn't the incarnation of some hope. It isn't something taken out of the realm of fancy or fantasy. It isn't a detail in a novel. No, no. 
This is a faithful saying, says Paul. This is history. This is fact. Well, how does he know that? On what grounds does he make this tremendous claim for his message, the thing which he was preaching? Well, if you go to him and read his letters, you'll find that he gives us abundant answers to that question. For instance, in writing to the Galatians, he's at great pains to make this clear beyond any doubt or peradventure whatsoever. They had been beginning to doubt all these things, to doubt his call, and to doubt whether the gospel was true. But listen, says Paul, though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Well, why does he say this? Well, here's his answer. I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men, for I neither received it of men, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I'm preaching, says Paul, is not something that I've been told by another man. I'm not passing on a message that I've received secondhand. I'm not an apostle as the others are. They were all together and they were with the Lord. I wasn't. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an injurious person at that time. I wasn't one of the twelve apostles. I wasn't with them. Well, how is he a preacher? What right is he to say that this is a faithful saying? And his answer is this, that he received it directly from the Lord himself. He was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to exterminate the Christian church there, breathing out threatenings and slaughter, hating the very name of Christ. And suddenly, about noonday, he saw that shining in the heavens above the brightest shining of the sun and the face. And he asked, Who art thou, Lord? And back came the answer, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. He got it all directly from him. Christ spoke to him on that road and said, I'm going to make you a minister and a witness to the people and to the Gentiles. He gave him the commission. He called him to be an apostle. He gave him the message. I'm not repeating second-hand stories, says Paul. I've got it from the fountainhead. I've received it from the blessed Lord of glory himself. It's a faithful saying. But it wasn't merely Paul who said this. All the apostles said the same thing. You remember how Peter puts it very plainly and clearly? Some of us were here considering this very thing last Christmas morning. We have not preached unto you, says Peter, cunningly devised fable. But were I witnesses of his majesty when we were with him on the holy mount? Ah, my friends, it's still true. Our whole position is based upon this apostolic testimony. The gospel is fact. It's a faithful saying. It is something on which we can rely. It is trustworthy. We have this tremendous authentication for it. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The men who were with him heard his words, saw his miracles, saw him dying on the cross, saw him buried in the grave, saw the stone rolled onto it, and then went together in the inner room, saw him suddenly appearing, though the doors were shut and there was no means of entry. Who saw him ascending into heaven? That's the authentication. It's a faithful saying. It is sure, it is true, it is trustworthy. But he's got a second reason for glorying in the preaching of this message. 
And that is, he says, it's a gospel according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The apostle didn't go around the world preaching a second law. He was preaching good news, a gospel. He came to people in sin and misery and shame and had a great and a wondrous message. Listen, he says, listen to what I have to tell you. Good news, gospel. It's not, I say, a new law. He didn't go around making fresh demands upon people. He didn't just go around preaching a certain bit of moralism and ethical teaching. He didn't go and tell people, just listen, if you put a great effort into it and pull yourselves together, at last you can save yourselves and lift up your world. That's not good news. We are tired out and weak and exhausted. We are already failures. No, no. He says, I haven't come to give good advice even. He has come to be the herald of a gospel, good news, and he's full of rejoicing and of praise and of exultation because of the character of his message. But he tells us a third thing about it for me to note these things hurriedly. I wish I could stay with them for hours. It's not only a gospel, he says, it is the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. For that is the right translation of verse 11. This authorized version has it like this, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. But that isn't right, it isn't good. This is the translation. According to the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And this was his supreme reason for glorying in his preaching of the gospel. There is nothing which so displays the glory of God as this gospel of Jesus Christ. Ah, we know that God's glory is to be seen in many ways. The psalmist tells us in the 19th Psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God, and they do. Look up in a starry night, look at the sun and the moon and the stars at any time. Look at the mountains and the valleys, the rivers and the streams, the beauty of the flowers and the little lambs gambling in the field, the hymns and all creation. Declare the glory of God and the firmament manifests and displays the wonders of his ways. Ah, but it all pales into insignificance when we put it side by side with this, it is here you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. You remember how when God gave the law to Moses, great glory was manifested. The people couldn't touch the mount. They couldn't draw near unto it even. If any animal touched it, he died. And there was the cloud and the fire and the smoke and the glory of God over it all. Moses had a glimpse of it. And the effect of that upon him was to make his face shine, reflecting the glory of God. There was great glory manifested in the giving of the law. But it is nothing when you put it side by side with the glory that shines from the face of that babe in Bethlehem. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined into our hearts. What for? 
to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, he is the express image of his person and the effulgence of the whole glory of God. Well, there are the apostles' reasons for glorying in his office, for glorying in being allowed to preach this gospel. It's a faithful saying. It's good news. It is the supreme manifestation of the glory of God. He tells us that. But then he tells us a second thing about all this. And that is that this, he says, is a message which should lead to a response. In other words, he is not just a philosopher going and propounding a new theory uh, to an academic group of people who sit in a detached manner and look on and listen and enjoy it. No, no. This is a message which does something. It calls for a response. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. Now, this is a striking phrase and we must be perfectly clear in our minds as to what it means. What does he mean by worthy of all acceptation? Well, negatively, he does not mean that it is just worthy of our approbation. They're not merely worthy of our intellectual interest and uh, acceptance and agreement. It does demand that, but it doesn't stop there. All acceptation is much more than approbation or assent or approval we are not meant just to applaud this and to look on as, as looking on the spectacle and saying how marvelous, how wonderful, and then continue as we were before. No, no. All acceptation. What does he mean? Well, the term means this. To take fully. To welcome. To receive gladly. And therefore to respond to it. And therefore to yield to it. That's what he means by full acceptation. Now these are not my theories. You turn up your authorities and you'll find that that is what the word means. Full all acceptation. To take fully unto yourself. To be mastered, to be gripped by it. To be controlled by it, to yield yourself to it. Or if I may put it in a phrase... The faithfulness of the message, it is a faithful saying, yes, the faithfulness of the message should lead to faith in it. Not a detached consideration, not an idle contemplation, oh no, but a response, a full, all acceptation. In other words, the apostle was proud of preaching this gospel. Because it is something that takes up the whole men and governs and controls the whole life. Something that is so full of, full of dynamic that it revolutionizes men and makes them anew and changes nations. Oh, listen to him putting it in that immortal phrase to the Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why not? Well, he says, because it is the power of God the dynamic of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth. It'll turn the world upside down. It'll turn sinners into saints. It'll take a hopeless drunkard and turn him into someone who adorns the life of the church. It can come to a harlot and a prostitute and make of her a Madonna. The power of God and to salvation to everyone that believeth. 
It is worthy of all acceptation. It is so wonderful and glorious that it's to be fully received by the whole personality and the entire man is changed as the result of it. It's not surprising that he was proud of this message and proud of ever being called to preach it and to proclaim it. But that brings me to my third and my last principle and the most practical of all. If that is the character of the gospel and if that is the result and the end to which it is meant to lead, the question that then arises is this, isn't it? What is it that determines whether that is our response to it or not? And the apostle tells us here, he shows clearly what determines whether that full or all acceptation is our response to this message or not. Well, what is it that determines it? Need I apologize for asking you a personal question on this Christmas morning? Have you accepted this message? Have you given it all acceptation? Does it dominate your life? Is this the chief thing in your life? That's what's meant by all acceptation. That you've seen it's a faithful, a true saying. You've seen what it is, and you've given your whole being in a glad response. Is that so? Is that true of us? What is it that makes a man respond to it in that way and give it all acceptation? Well, let me just note the things the apostle tells us here. The first thing is our view of what happened there at Bethlehem so long ago. What did happen there? We are thinking of a babe in a manger this morning. Ah, yes, but our response to that event is determined by this. Our view of uh, the babe, who is this babe? Who is this person? Is he just an ordinary babe like every other babe? Is he born out of ordinary wedlock? Has he a human father and mother? Is he just of natural generation? Who is this babe? That's the thing that's going to determine my response and my acceptance. And the apostle makes it perfectly plain. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ, Jesus, came into the world. Yes, we're looking at a babe and his name is Jesus. But who is this Jesus? And you notice the apostle gives us the answer in one word. And it's the word came. He doesn't say Christ Jesus was born. He says Christ Jesus came into the world. This is no ordinary birth. This is not one in a series of births, the result of natural generation. Here is one of whom we say that he wasn't born, but that he came into the world. Where did he come from? He came from eternity. He came from heaven. He came from the bosom of the everlasting Father. And no one else has ever come from there. He said himself in speaking to Nicodemus later on in his life, he says, no man hath ascended into heaven except the Son of Man which has come from heaven, who is in heaven. 
Here's the mystery and the marvel of it all. Came into the world. Jesus, who is he? Well, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the one of whom the prophets have been singing. The one typified in the law and in the offerings and the sacrifices. The Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the whole world. He, here is the one who has come. Jesus, certainly. But Christ, the long-promised Messiah, who is he? Well, John answers the question by telling us in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The everlasting Son of God, the Lord of glory, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity, he is the one who has come. He has left heaven. He has divested himself of the insignia of his eternal glory, and he has humbled himself And he has come in the fashion of a man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, born as a helpless babe. Jesus, yes, but the Christ, the everlasting and eternal Son of God. This is the first thing that determines our acceptance. This is the thing that conditions our response. But let's look at it like this. This person, this second person, In the Blessed Holy Trinity came and came into the world. If this doesn't break our hearts, nothing will. He came from that everlasting and eternal glory. From the highest throne of heaven into the world. And you and I know what the world is. It's London at midnight. It's the London and the world of the newspapers with the crime and the vice and the malice and the envy and the bitterness and the hatred. The world, he came from those realms of glory into the world. He humbled himself. He abased himself. He descended Was there ever such condescension? Was there ever such abasement? Well, that's it, says the Apostle. You see, the first thing that determines our response is our view of that little babe. And do we realize, dear friends, this morning as we ought, that that babe is the Lord of glory, the creator of everything, without whom nothing that is created, that was created, was created. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that is made. The one who fashioned the universe is lying helpless in that manger. It's as we realize that we respond to it. That he came so low into poverty and into this world of sin and wretchedness and shame. But come, let me hurry on to the second thing. Our view, I say, of what happened at Bethlehem is the first thing that determines our response, but this is the second Our view of why he ever did this. Our view of why he came. Our view of why he has done what he did and what he has done. What is it? Well, here it is once and forever. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? 
to save sinners. And if we are not clear about this, we can't rejoice in this message and will not give it all acceptation. Let me put my negatives again, therefore. And they were never needed more than today. Jesus Christ came into this world not simply to teach us. He didn't come simply to give us a formula for solving the international problems or the racial problem in South Africa. There are men who give the impression that that's the whole of Christianity. Pacifism and interracial questions. They're the mere corollaries. He didn't come to do that. He didn't come to teach. He didn't come to teach only. Neither did he come only to give us an example of how to live. Neither did he come just to help us to live. Thank God he does all these things, but he didn't come to do them. That isn't the object. What is it then? He came into the world to save sinners. To save them. What does this mean? Well, it means a deliberate purpose. He came as a part of God's great plan and purpose of salvation and of redemption. You needn't take my word for this. Listen to him. He said, the Son of Man is come. Why? To seek and to save that which is lost. Same thing. Or listen to him again. The Son of Man, he says, is not come to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. To save. Listen to him offering his high priestly prayer just before he goes to the cross. Father, he says, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Why has he come? Well, he's been given a task. God the Father gave him something to do. He gave him a task. He gave him a particular bit of work to carry out. And he says, Father, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And there he is dying on the cross. And you hear him saying, It is finished. There he has finished the task. Well, what is this task? Well, it's all here in these words. To save. To deliver, to set free. I wonder on this Christmas morning whether we are all perfectly clear about this. That the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first instance doesn't ask us to do anything. But he tells us what Christ has done for us. Have you got that clearly? If you haven't, you know you won't accept this message. And you won't go away rejoicing and singing as the shepherds went of old. People think of the gospel as a task, a bit of good advice, a new law, a teaching that you want. No, no. Before it asks you to do anything, it comes as good news. And what's the good news? Well, it tells us what he has done for us men and for our salvation. And what has he done? Well, listen to the apostle putting it elsewhere. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Why did he come? He came to make this redemption possible. He came, says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews, to taste death for every man. He came to make his soul an offering for sin. 
who his own self bore our trespasses in his own body on the tree, that we being dead unto sins should live unto righteousness. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, to remove our sins, to reconcile us to God, to bring us to God. That's why he came, no less. He came, if you like, to die. He came to bear the guilt and punishment of our transgressions. By his stripes we are healed. He came to save. That's the primary object. And it's only men who realize that, who rejoice in him, and who accept this message fully. So that brings me to my last word, and with this I stop. He came to save. That's the primary object, and it's only men who realize that, who rejoice in him, and who accept this message fully. So that brings me to my last word, and with this I stop. What determines whether we accept this message or not is, first, I say, our view of him, secondly, our view of what he came to do, and thirdly, our view of ourselves. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I, I am the chief. And it's this last thing, our view of ourselves, that determines whether we accept the message fully or not. The Pharisee that our Lord depicted in Luke 18, the Pharisee and the publican going up into the temple to pray, he didn't need a savior. I thank God, he says, that I'm not as other men are, especially this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give a tenth of my goods to feed the poor. He doesn't need a savior. He saved himself. He's perfect. He does everything. He's marvelous. He's wonderful. He's contented. He doesn't rejoice over the babe of Bethlehem. Why? He's never seen any need of him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and he said, They that are whole have no need of a physician, but they that are sick. I came, he says, not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees didn't rejoice in him. Why? Well, because he made them feel that they were sinners, and they didn't like that. They never saw the need of salvation. The publicans and the harlots, he says, go crowding into the kingdom, and you remain outside. They knew that they were sinners. The only people who give all acceptation to this message are the people who have seen themselves condemned, damned sinners under the holy law of God. They are men who have seen that the law demands this, that thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind and all thy strength and thy neighbor as thyself, and who realize that they haven't done it. They haven't loved God with the whole of their being. They haven't loved their neighbors. They're selfish, self-centered. They've spurned the vice divine. They've ignored God. They've put their will before God's. They've put their children before God, husband or wife, money or car or position or country. And they're sinners in the sight of God and they're hopeless. And the law of God condemns them. And they say, what can I do? They're the people who rejoice to hear that Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And if a man doesn't realize that he is a sinner, he'll see nothing in Christmas.
Oh, except a means for jollification. He won't be thrilled. He won't sing. He won't join the angelic choir. Why? Well, he doesn't feel he has need of anything and nothing's happened. But if a man's seen himself going to hell and hopeless and the law of God thundering against him and then realizes that the Son of God came to take over all his debt and sin and shame and guilt and bore it himself and has paid the bill and crossed out the books and has reconciled him to God why he realizes he owes everything to him and he drops on his knees before him and he worships him and he praises him. That's the thing, isn't it? I, says Paul, who was a blasphemer and injurious, he had mercy upon me. He puts it again to the Galatians. He says, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Oh, I know that Christmas is a time of general goodwill and affability. But you know, Ultimately, it's a very personal occasion, isn't it? What gift have I received? What have you given me? Oh, we give gifts to one another, I know, but if it was simply something external, it wouldn't mean much to us. It's the personal element. It's the time for a personal expression of interest and goodwill and of love. You give a person a present, you send a Christmas card, you're expressing an interest in them individually. And that's what we like about all this. It's perfectly right, isn't it? Ah, yes, but it's infinitely more true here. Christmas isn't a general idea. It's the thing that brings me back to this and reminds me of the fact that the Lord of glory, the eternal Son of God, so loved me. Me, the vile creature that I know myself to be, in whom there is no good thing, Damned and lost if I'm left to myself. He loved me. And he gave himself on that cross. For me. This is a faithful saying. And worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I, I, am the chief. Very well. I'll be the foremost in the choir. I'll sing louder than anyone else. I'll be ever in the forefront of the army that praises him and glorifies and magnifies his holy name. What of you, my friend? Does all this come to you personally this morning? Do you know that the Son of God loved you and has given himself for you? Have you given this message all acceptation? Have you received it into your heart? Have you given yourself to it? Oh, let me put it like this. Is there deep within your being this morning a sense of gratitude and of praise? Thankfulness unto God do you want to say with Paul, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift? Is there joy and peace in your heart? Because the Son of God came down to Bethlehem and then went to the cross and the grave and rose again that you might be made a child of God.
and an air of the bliss and the glory of God and of heaven. It's a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. If you've never accepted it before, do it this Christmas morning. Receive the gift divine and become a child of God and an heir of his glory.